I wanted so very much to say this morning, turn in your Bibles to Romans 13, but I want to say something else today, something that I think is very, very important. We finished in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, a very, very important section of Scripture that talks about our relationship to one another as fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, chapter 13 of Romans begins our relationship as Christians to our government. But there's something in between, not those two chapters, of course, but in the reality of the Christian life, that I think we ought to address before we go into Romans 13. And so, I want to take two Sundays out of our verse-by-verse exposition of this marvelous letter of Paul to the Romans, and I want to address and direct us to a topic which is a very important one in the Christian life, and that is how to respond to sinning Christians. In Romans 12, 9 to 21, there is, of course a response of Christians toward others, and it, of course, speaks much about love, which is what we ought to do when we respond to sinning Christians. But there is more, of course, in terms of loving them than is contained in Romans 12. And as I was talking to the elders this past week about some of the things that occupy us as shepherds. We began talking about this matter of church discipline, both on the official level, like Matthew 18 talks about, which I want to deal with next Lord's Day, but also the sense in which Christians relate to each other when sin is between them or sin exists in the fellowship. And I want to talk about that this morning and next Lord's Day. What I hope to accomplish in these two messages is to alert us as to what the Bible teaches regarding our relationship to each other as professing members of the body of Christ, especially when we have the responsibility to deal with those who are sinning in such a way that it needs to be addressed by fellow members of the body. There are responsibilities which fellow Christians must pursue with one another that don't always demand that they go to the church leadership for assistance. The Bible has many passages for which we are to appeal in relating to one another as we continue to sin, which... Of course, we as Christians will inevitably do. And so I want to address that this morning. And then next Lord's Day, as we move to the official sense of our relationship to one another, when it becomes apparent that what you have done is not allowing another person to repent. It is true, of course, that if... Before church discipline officially commences, sins are not confessed and repented of. We must do what we do as Christians, like the first two steps in Matthew 18 teaches us. We must go through processes. And, of course, if there is no repentance, we must alert the church leadership so that they may assist us in the process of holding each other accountable to our profession of Christ. And, of course, many of us are familiar with the official church discipline and restoration process. It's taught for us in our membership classes before we become joined to this fellowship and which, Lord willing, we'll address even more in our next message. But I want to address a concept as it relates to our responsibility to interact with those fellow members who are not necessarily candidates for official church discipline, 
and yet who are sinning in such a way that it demands some kind of definite response from those in the fellowship around them. I want to see if I can pull a number of New Testament passages together which could give us some tracks to run on in how to respond to erring fellow professing believers. Now let me say at the outset that I'm not going to continually qualify myself when I speak of those sinning Christians we are dealing with. I want to call them professing members of the body of Christ. And even the title in this little mini-series of two parts, How to Respond to Sinning Christians, is intentional, even though I, of course, want to qualify what I'm saying. Because what I'm saying is that I'm not implying that every single person with whom we come in contact in the church is indeed a true Christian. I think we would know that, we would understand that. In fact, even the New Testament writers knew very well that all that they wrote in their letters to those churches did not assume that every single person that they were writing was a bona fide believer in Jesus. But they were attached to the church. And I'm using the word Christian then, both in the title of these messages and even in the content of these two messages in the broadest possible sense. The reason I want to qualify this idea up front with you is that I fully realize some people are sinning in the way that they are because they really aren't genuine Christians at all. I understand that. I know that. Ultimately, though, only the Lord knows who are really His. And so if someone professes to know Christ, we must deal with them on the basis of their claim. They say they know Christ, we need to deal with them on that basis. That someone is to be treated as an unbeliever only when in an official sense the church regards that person as so, and that, of course, through a very clear process outlined by our Lord. I hope to look at that next time. But for this time, I want us to see how we should relate to people in such a way that we assume in that broadest sense of the term that they're Christians, they profess to know Christ, they say they love the Lord, and I'm sure in many cases they certainly do know the Lord. But inevitably, we sin even as Christians. And when we sin, we need to be encouraged, admonished, dealt with, held accountable. And when we look at most of the following passages that I want to give to you, I want you to apply in these passages to any one individual in the church as though you were applying them to genuine Christians, because that's how we ought to to treat them, mainly because, as I said, of their claim. I'm not necessarily encouraging you to make a value judgment about whether or not a person is really a Christian. That's really not our call. This is not a judgment on an individual Christian that we're supposed to make by some official means that's left up to the leadership of the church. And yet I know someone will say, yes, but you kept referring to sinning Christians And clearly by some of these passages we're going to look at, you're going to say, how can that person really be a Christian? Yes, I understand that. Someone might say, but isn't it true that not everyone who names the name of Christ really is converted to Christ? Yes, of course. And isn't it also true, someone might say, that when we confront sinning people who dwell in the midst of the church that their sinning could be due to the fact that they really aren't Christians at all? Yes, this is certainly the case with some. And that's why I want to choose my words carefully when I'm referring to sinning, professing members of the body of Christ. Because as fellow members of the body of Christ, we can't always tell who professes but someone who doesn't possess the Lordship of Christ in their life. It's not altogether clear at times with someone as to where they are and whether or not they have a genuine relationship to Christ as over against a mere verbal profession. 
That's even so much more true in 21st century Western North American evangelicalism. Because there is often so many people who profess, even in the Bible Belt, especially there, where so many people go to church, so many people say they're Christians, so many people say that they love the Lord, and maybe even those within our own fellowship who have confessed all the right things, said all the right words, and yet have no genuine saving relationship to Christ. I want to talk a little bit about that, and of course as we move into Matthew 18 next time and a little bit of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to address those things because the Bible definitely addresses them, but they address them in such a way that ultimately the determination of a person who has a verbal profession of Christ, but for whom there is some level of scrutiny and then evaluation as to whether or not they really have that genuine relationship with Christ is left over to the leadership of the local church. I want to talk today, before we ever go there, about the idea of sinning Christians, those who profess Christ, before it ever gets to that level, or maybe even when it doesn't get to that level. But I know that we must qualify ourselves because it's easy for us, especially if we're prone to doing more admonishing of others rather than being admonished ourselves to make value judgments on someone's spiritual life, their testimony, their genuineness in Christ. It's easy on the part of some to do this, and we must be careful. I want you to turn in your Bibles back to Matthew 13, and I want to tell you, especially if you're in that category of someone who is prone to questioning whether or not professing Christians around them are really believers, and maybe even those people who say with their own words, based upon their own evaluation of somebody's heart, and maybe even sometimes, of course, their actions, would say, well, that person just isn't a believer, that person isn't saved, that person's not a Christian. And then begin to tell others about what they think, about their fellow member of the body. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. This is just a qualifier before we get into the points that I want to raise with you. Matthew 13, 24. This is a good warning for us. We must be warned not to prematurely attempt to ascertain who is part of the true and who is part of the false. And here's one way Jesus helps us. He says, He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, or tares, and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds or tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do what you want, then do what you want us to go and, excuse me, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers. Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, with any parable, as you know and as I know, sometimes it's difficult for us to understand what the right interpretation is. Thankfully, in verse 36, we're given that right interpretation from the Lord Himself. Verse 36, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Jesus answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age. That's the end, folks. And the reapers are angels. 
Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now that, my friends, is a clear warning that we as individual Christians are not to try to go and pluck up the weeds from the true, from the real wheat. Who's to do that? The Lord Jesus will do it and He will do it through the instrumentality of His angels and when will He do it? He'll do it at the end of the age. And so we must be very, very careful as individual believers that we assume we know who is a wheat and who is a tear. Who is a wheat and who is a weed. And we have to be very careful that we don't attempt ourselves to assume that we know the human heart to the degree that we can tell who's in and who's out of the kingdom. Who's a part of the true sons of the kingdom and who is a part of the evil one, the enemy who's gone and sown the weeds among the wheat. Now someone's going to immediately say yes, but look at chapter 12 of Matthew. In chapter 12, Jesus says in verse 33, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Someone could say, well, I don't have to know the motives of the heart. I don't have to believe that I can, with x-ray vision, look into the heart and know. I can know a tree by its fruit. Yes, true as far as it goes. And Jesus Himself even said in verse 34, of course, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. But notice... When will that person give an account? On the day of judgment. And that judgment will come with the Lord Jesus Himself as the judge, the judge of the living and the dead, and He knows omnisciently so who is good and who is evil. Look back at chapter 7 of Matthew. Jesus teaching at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Well, what's the difficulty there? Well, for us as human beings and sinful and flawed human beings at that, when we see someone coming in sheep's clothing, which was the moniker of a prophet, how do we know that person is false? Because they're coming with sheep's clothing. It looks good on the outside, and inwardly are ravenous wolves, but we can't look on the inside. We don't know that. How can we tell? Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And of course that fire is at the end. Ultimate judgment. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Which is to say, while Jesus can determine those things omnisciently, sometimes we cannot. Because the sheep's clothing are on. The person appears to be friend, not foe. We can't always tell. We can tell at times, and we can tell, of course, by their doctrine of Christ, what they think about Christ. Sometimes, of course, you can tell, at least to some degree, hintingly so, about their lifestyle, if their lifestyle is inconsistent with Christianity, but it's still difficult, sometimes more difficult than others. And so we as Christians must be careful that we're not fruit inspectors to the degree that we think we know exactly who's in and who's out of the kingdom. 
You have to be very, very careful. And yet, and yet at the same time, there are people within the fellowship, maybe even those who aren't touting themselves as teachers within the fellowship, although that would be true about them as well, some of them, that we can't know with individual believers worshiping around us, doing good works around us, reading their Bibles around us, praying around us, whether or not they truly know the Lord, which makes these warnings by Jesus all the more important that we must be careful that we don't judge the people around us as though we know what's really going on with them, as though we really know what their eternal destiny actually is. We have to be careful. And amazingly, though, the Bible, at the same time that it warns us, yet also tells us that there are to be certain responses to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, those who would say, I'm a Christian, those who would say, I'm a follower of the Lord, that we actually must do things toward them when they sin that may even look like we're doing things to mark them out as sinning people. It's an amazing thing. And in fact, many Christians are confused about this. They'll go from one pole to the other. They'll say, well, look, if Jesus warns that we cannot pluck up this this tear or this wheat prematurely, we must be very careful to do that. We can know some bad trees by their fruit, some good trees by their fruit, mainly referring, of course, to prophets and false prophets, good teachers and bad teachers, but we've got to be careful there as well. So they go to that pole and say, well, then I can never, ever judge or adjudicate anything by those around me because of these very severe warnings. And so they go around, and this is the group that normally says something like this, judge not... Judge not, lest you be judged. And then somebody will say, along the other pole, well, wait a minute. I think that there are passages that tell us that we ought to judge. And certainly, even Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John, don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. There are several passages that talk about Christians and their need to judge those around them. And you'll have that person along the pole on the other side who look as though they are self-professed fruit inspectors who are looking at everybody around them with the idea, is this person producing fruit that qualifies them as being a genuine Christian? And if they don't, well, then I have to, to question because I'm supposed to judge, not according to appearance, but I'm supposed to judge with righteous judgment. And so if they're not doing righteous deeds, as it appears to me, then I'm going to question whether or not they really truly know the Lord at all. And I suspect you and I have met both poles, right? Both kinds of people. And of course, there is an obvious balance in between. We are to be weary of judging someone in such a way that we assume we know the fruit of their lives or lack of it. And we need to be very, very careful that we don't do so with the idea that we know what's going on. And yet at the same time, the Bible teaches us, and I want to teach you this morning, that there are ways and means for which we actually need to respond to sinning Christians and in ways that I think you're going to be amazed as we see it unfold. And so I'm arguing for a balance balance between those two things. And you say, well, if it's easier for me to say, I don't want to judge, I'm not going to judge anybody. I'm just going to go into my own little cubicle, my cocoon, and I'm not going to judge anybody because I know someone might be able to judge my life, then I'm not going to do any of that at all. You'd actually be sinning if you were to do that. Because the Bible actually commands us in some ways to mark certain people out and to stand aloof from them as sinning Christians, professing believers. So you'd be sinning if you don't do that. And yet at the same time, if you go so far in the other direction and you're marking out, it seems, everybody except yourself, that's a problem too. So where's the balance? Let me see if I can give it to you this morning. I want to give you four different responses to sinning Christians. Okay? And remember, I've qualified myself, Christians in quotes, 
Four different responses to sinning Christians. In the time that we have remaining, I want to give you a number of passages, as I'm very famous for doing, and I want to give them to you as quickly as I can. I wish we could go through these passages and exposit each and every one of them. We don't have the time to do that, but at least I can give you enough so that you can write it down, and then tonight at 6 o'clock, we're going to have some dialogical teaching in which you're going to say, now wait a minute, what about this? Or have you considered this? Or I've never even seen that before. What does that mean? What are the implications of these ideas? That's going to be fun for us. All right, here's number one. Number one, and I hope these are easy because I've put in the verb all A's, okay? Respond to some sinning Christians by addressing them with forgiveness. Respond to some sinning Christians by addressing them with forgiveness. If you're still in Matthew, turn over to chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Now I think this is the right and best place to go with that first point because there are going to be people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, who are going to sin, and some of them are going to sin directly against you, and you have a response to them that you're going to need to give. And I think the the most appropriate thing to do is if they repent, notice what I said, if they repent, then your obligation and my obligation is to forgive them because you both profess faith in Christ We're going to sin against each other. That's inevitable. And when someone comes and seeks your forgiveness and repents of what they have done, then you're obligated to forgive them. Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 12. Jesus said in the so-called Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You notice the assumption there that forgiveness has come. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, verse 13. Verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's really a simple point. If you are in the business of being or experiencing the Lord's forgiveness, then you're going to be a sin forgiver yourself. In fact, I heard Don Whitney say one time, and I think he's right, if you've been forgiven by the Lord, and you know how many sins you've committed against Him, then you'll be a quicker forgiver. You'll be a quicker forgiver. Because you know that you yourself have been forgiven such an unpayable debt. So that when someone comes against you as a sinning Christian, and maybe it's against you directly, of course, there are other categories of the way someone, like a leader, could sin against a congregation, but mainly talking about those who are sinning one-on-one against each other or maybe in a group context. And when that person says, I repent, I need your forgiveness, the way you address them is with magnanimous forgiveness. Look at chapter 18 of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. We're going to get to verses 15 to 20 next time, but verse 21, right out of the context of someone sinning, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As much as seven times? He thought he was being generous. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Incredible. And then knowing that this is going to be a hard pill to swallow, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. A talent was this unit of measure that equaled about 20 years of wages. So what would 20 by 10 be? That's an unpayable debt. Nobody lives to be 200 years old. That's unpayable. You can't do that. It's something that he does not have the ability to repay. That's why verse 25 says, and since he could not pay. He just can't pay it. It's beyond him. It's like our sin. It's it's unpayable. We can't possibly ever seek to live enough years to pay back our sins, mainly, of course, because we keep sinning in the process. So we keep adding to the list. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made, which if nothing happens to him, what will happen to he and his family? 
they'll forever be in debt and never be able to repay. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, this king, he says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, I would assume, as you would, that he would be fairly happy about such a thing, right? I mean, just the concept that I owe an unpayable debt that I could never repay. And out of pity for him, which is what moves the master, he released him and forgave him all the debt. Verse 28, But when the same servant went out, Talk about short-term memory loss. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is a day's wage. How much was he forgiven? An uncountable number. How much was owed to him? About a day's wage. And he said, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down. Same thing he'd done to his master, and he pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, righteous anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And how long would that be? Forever. Can't pay it. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So, Somebody comes, just like this man came, who owed one day's wage. Let's say say he owed ten bucks. And he said, I'm repenting. I owe you this money. I know I owe you this money. And I want to repent. I want to repay you. And if you'll be patient with me, I will. And somebody says, no, not going to do it. You know what it implies? That really that man who went to his, his master and he had an unpayable debt... And that he asked him to be released from it. He wasn't serious. He didn't have from his heart the idea of a forgiving heart. So what should you do with sinning Christians who come to you and say, I sinned. I repent. I I want you to forgive me. And someone says, oh, well, boy, you must not be a Christian. No. We don't make that value judgment. Somebody comes and says, I repent. You say, well, maybe I forgive you. You know, it really depends up to me and my heart. And someone comes and says, I repent, please forgive me. And with a heart, out of the abundance of what you know, you've been forgiven an unpayable debt. What do we say? What's the right answer? Of course I'll forgive you. If I've been forgiven so much myself, how could I not forgive you? It would be wrong for me not to forgive you. Look at Luke 17. A parallel kind of passage. Luke 17, 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. And I'll tell you, one of those temptations that's sure to come is when somebody comes to you and says, I need to be forgiven. Would you please forgive me? What temptation will be sure to come there? No, I'm not going to forgive you. No, you've hurt me too deeply. This is, this is so bad what you've done to me. And we set ourselves up as the jury and the executioner and the judge all rolled into one and say, no, I'm not going to do I am hurting so deeply that I don't know that I could ever get over this. And you know, every time that might be a flash across the brain of your life, you ought to say something like this. As soon as that flash comes across, you ought to say something like this. Wait a minute. That's exactly what the Master could have said about me. That I hurt Him deeply because I killed His own Son. 
course I can forgive you. Jesus said it would be better for him, the one who tempts somebody to sin, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, that he should cause one of these little ones, a reference to a believer, to sin. Then he says, pay attention to yourselves. I should say, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you, what's the next word? Must forgive him. Somebody says, twice, yes. Four times, maybe. Seven times in one day, you got to be kidding. Seven times in the day. So it doesn't matter if it's seven times in a day or 490 times, 70 times seven, it doesn't matter. Because we've been forgiven, if someone comes and repents, we ought to forgive them. Remember Galatians 6.1? If your brother's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, that's not a higher class of Christians. You who are spiritual, that means you as over against those who aren't spiritual, the world. Because what would the world do? The world would treat that person who's caught in a trespass entirely differently than we would. We who are spiritual, we restore such a one, we restore the relationship. Of course I'll forgive you. Now, will it take some work for us as human beings and sinful and flawed as we are to not only grant forgiveness but work toward not using it against the other person in the present or the future? Yes, of course. But that's what we do. That's why we've been given more days in the Christian life to learn how to do exactly that. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. This is how you are to respond to some sinning Christians by addressing them with forgiveness. So important. This is the first place we ought to go because they're coming and they're requesting it. They want us to forgive them. Look at chapter 4 verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness. This is how you're supposed to respond to those who come to you and with patience, bearing with one another in love. Why would Paul even have to say bearing with one another if there wasn't an issue of sin at times between us, right? Because bearing with one another, you don't even have to know Greek to know what it means. You know what it means? To put up with. To put up with people. And that certainly implies putting up with people who sometimes do indeed sin against you and you sin against them. He says in verse 3, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Look at verse 13. When, When will I need to give up on this practice? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 15, we're speaking the truth in love and we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Just keep on doing it. Just keep on addressing fellow sinners in the Christian life with forgiveness. How about James chapter 5? James chapter 5 gives us a good word on this. James chapter 5 verse 16 Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. And whether this is talking about real, literal healing or metaphorically spiritual healing, we need each other, we need to pray, we need to confess to one another. And when we confess to one another, we don't want someone responding and saying, no, no, I'm not going to help you. No, you address some sinning Christians with forgiveness. Number two, respond to some sinning Christians by admonishing them in their sin. This isn't isn't addressing them with forgiveness. This is actually admonishing them in their sin. This is a different response, right? This is a person who hasn't necessarily come to you and said, hey, I, I need to repent of something. Please forgive me. This is somebody who is actually not that kind of person, but who needs to be admonished. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thess 5, verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, this is Paul's instruction 
to the Thessalonians in Thessalonica about their relationship to each other. And he says, right out of the chute, right off the bat, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. That word idol, someone who's out of step, out of cadence. That's a sin word. That's, that's somebody who's sinning. And what does he say do? Admonish. That's that nutheteo. That's where we get nuthetic, the nuthetic counseling ministry. That's where we receive that transliterated word. We are to place into their minds the word of God so that they won't be idle, so that they won't be out of step, out of cadence, out of line. That's how you are to treat some sinning Christians. They're sinning in such a way that instead of you coming to them and saying, oh, by the way, even though you're in sin in this deal, I forgive you anyway. You see, that doesn't even work. They're not even asking you for forgiveness. It doesn't appear as though at that moment they are repenting. So you don't say to somebody, oh, by the way, I I, I forgive you even though you're not doing anything to seek forgiveness. There's There's no help in that. What you need to do is do what Paul says, and that is admonish them. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. These are some of these passages that you may not normally think of when you think of responding to certain sinning Christians. Look at chapter 3 verse 6. Now we command you brothers, and if you want to know how weighty this is, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Now, isn't that interesting? This is actually how you're supposed to respond to a certain kind of sinning Christian. And what does he say? Keep away from that person. Now, that is counterintuitive. Because in the body of Christ, we're always talking about love. We're always talking about persevering love and going to someone and loving them through it and talking with them about what's going on and always being ever ready. This is saying, keep away from that brother. That is incredible. By the way, the idea, stelesthai from stelomai, means to, to guard against, to avoid, to keep away from. Here's another word that really gives definition to this, to shun. Shun. That's the word there. Shun this person. For you yourselves know, he says, verse 7, how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. He's saying, I'm giving you the example. You saw how we acted. We weren't idle. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right. In other words, we get our living from the gospel. We could have demanded that you support us, but we wanted to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, he says, verse 10, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, what would happen if the community of believers did not let somebody eat if they weren't willing to to work? What a diet plan that would be. But see, people come along and they say, oh, no, no, we can't do that. I mean, the the person's emaciated, the person needs our help. Well, but upon further investigation, if the person's not willing to eat, or not willing to work, he shouldn't be eating. We shouldn't just say, oh, let's have compassion on him. Let's go into the benevolence fund and help this person. He says, verse 11, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. That is a perpetual idea. You're walking in in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. In other words, they're doing a whole lot of talking and not a lot of working. And notice, verse 12, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Don't mooch off the other people. Verse 13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And maybe they would grow weary if they were the ones working and doing all kinds of labor and people around them were always having their hand out. You might be weary in doing good. Verse 14, key verse, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Very interesting word. Take note of that person means 
to associate or have dealings with, and in this case means take note of them so as not to have anything to do with them. Have nothing to do with him that he may be what? Ashamed. Now this is so counterintuitive. It's like, wait a minute. We're supposed to be the the church of love. We're supposed to be the church that reaches out. We're supposed to be the church that comes alongside people. Yes, if they repent, we come alongside them in manifold ways. If they don't repent, if they're walking in idleness, we're actually supposed to stay away from them, stay aloof. Now that is an amazing response on the part of Christians toward others. But notice, even though it's for the purpose of shaming them, verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him, that's our nutheteo, warn him as a brother. Now see, if you didn't have verse 15 there, some of you might be saying this, well look, it says he's walking in idleness, that's a pattern of life, he's not doing what he should do, he's not a believer, that's right, he's not a believer. Put him out. Paul says, you know, in some cases that might be appropriate and there are passages that deal with that. But in other cases, the persons never learned to work with their hands. Be patient. Work with them. And in some cases, even mark them out. Put them over to the side for the purpose of actually shaming them so that they would learn. I can't live like that in this group. I've got to learn to work. I've got to do the right thing. And when the Lord works on that person, they're warned because they're a true brother. He says, don't treat him like an enemy. Warn him as a brother. This admonishing ministry is very important. Remember Romans 15? One of these millennia will get there. Romans chapter 15, verse 14 I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish or instruct or warn one another. This is told to the whole church. This is the whole church's responsibility. They are to warn or admonish one another. That's what you do to people in sin. And by the way, that nutheteo verb, that's always implying that there's a sin issue. That's when Paul uses that particular word, when there's a sin to be dealt with. And you place the Word of God into the mind of that person so that they can understand what they're doing. That's why the whole church in Colossae, we're told in chapter 3, verse 16, that we are to admonish everyone with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts, but admonishing everybody when they sin, whether it's idleness or whatever it is. That's how you respond Two sinning Christians, some of those who are doing that by admonishing them in their sin. Thirdly, respond to some sinning Christians by avoiding their crafty doctrine. Now here's where I want to qualify myself, by avoiding those who teach crafty doctrine, because normally someone's going to automatically say, okay, well see, those aren't real Christians. Well, if their doctrine is skewed, that's right. But guess what? We don't always have to deal with them because they're outside the church. Sometimes it's going to be paramount for us to determine what they're teaching because they're teaching inside the church. They're calling themselves Christians. They're saying they're followers of Christ. But it's their teaching that needs to be dealt with. I know this is true because look at Acts chapter 20. This is what Paul tells the elders of the church at Ephesus. That's what he tells them tells them very, very clearly that there are going to be, even from their own eldership, some who are going to rise up, not sparing the flock, and who need to be dealt with. Acts chapter 20, look at verse 26. He says, I testify to you, these elders, on the island of Miletus, there the church of Ephesus He's meeting with them and he says, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, elders, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And then he says this, amazing words, I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock 
They are those on the outside. They've got the sheep's clothing. Inside, they're ravenous wolves. They're from the outside. And then verse 30, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, corrupt things, to draw away the disciples after them. And he, and he says, Therefore, be on the alert. And how do you do that? He says, just like I did for three years, I didn't cease night or day to admonish, there's our word again, everyone with tears. And what did he use? Verse 32, commending you to God and to the word of His grace. The word of God, which is able to build you up. So what do you do when you respond to some who are professing Christians in the body of Christ, maybe even those teachers in the body, or maybe even someone else that says, I believe this, and you discover that, you respond to them by avoiding their crafty doctrine. Avoid that at all costs. It may even be, back to 1 Timothy and the pastoral epistles, it may even be 1 Timothy chapter 5, according to verse 19, that there is a charge that's brought against an elder. It can't be done so unless it's on the evidence of two or three witnesses, But as for those who persist in sin, could of course be a moral sin, but could also be a theological one, a doctrinal one, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Maybe the rest of the leaders may be a reference to the rest of the group, the church. He says that's why you don't lay hands on people too hastily. Why? Because you take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. 1 Timothy chapter 6, just one chapter over. Look at verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid, there's our word, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. You say, how does that relate to our response to sinning Christians? It's not just those guys out the door there who are talking about Christianity. It's sometimes people right in here who are calling something knowledge, the knowledge of God. Here's the way to God. And then when they begin to spout their theology, he says, avoid it. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradiction. Somebody says, well, I'll just let my leaders do that. I'll let my leaders determine that. No. It's everybody's responsibility. Everybody. We can't always hear everything that's being taught everywhere. I was at Grace Community Church, and at one point I found out that in a small group Bible study, someone was teaching falsely. And people came to me and and gave me a sense of that confrontation with that person. And we had to go through the steps of discipline for this person because he was a heretic and needed to be put out. It's the responsibility of everybody. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them, remind them, you, your leaders, and all the people of these things, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Make yourself an approved workman. Verse 16, avoid irreverent babble. Every time, avoid, avoid, avoid. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And he even gives two names, Hymenaeus and Philetus. They're spreading their talk like gangrene. They swerve from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. You know what that leads me to believe? If they're upsetting the faith of some, they're right in the church. They're right in the fellowship. We've got to respond to these people by avoiding them. This is, this is an amazing response. Look at chapter 3 verse 5 some people have the appearance of godliness they're going to be in the church but they deny deny its true power avoid such people avoid them over and over and over again chapter 1 of titus verse 10 he says there are many who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision party Judaizers, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. 
This testimony is true. I've always laughed at that line. One of the Cretans, one of their own, says Cretans are always liars. Well, if he's a Cretan, was he lying when he said that? He says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. In verse 16, you ought to mark this in your Bibles, they profess to know God. See, they're in the fellowship. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. They've been examined and found unworthy. That's what you have to do to them. You have to respond to these kinds of people by avoiding them at all costs. Now, yes, there are elders who will also be dealing with them. In fact, this whole section, of course, speaks of the qualification of an elder, but what an elder teaches you is what you are supposed to uphold as well. And there may also be someone who's in a position of elder who doesn't need to be there. They're spouting false doctrine. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 9. Here's this word, avoid, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, some of your Bibles may say heretic, because that's the word hereticos. As for a person who's a heretic, a person who's stirring up division doctrinally, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. You see the difference? If you're responding to a a sinning, professing Christian who is idle, who's a busybody, and you deal with them, and you don't regard him as an enemy but as a brother, and if he repents, you can have confidence that that person truly knows the Lord. They've repented of that. They're walking now in holiness and righteousness. But if someone comes along and they're spouting their crafty doctrine and they're denying the person of Christ and other essential truths and they're stirring up division, it says, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Why is he self-condemned? Because he's spouting condemning doctrine if he says that's what he believes he's self-condemned even 2nd John speaks of this idea very clearly 2nd John chapter or excuse me verse 6 and this is love that we walk according to his commandments so we're supposed to love each other yes we're supposed to walk in it but he says verse 7 for many deceivers have gone out of the world Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, they deny that. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we've worked for but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting." For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. That's how you respond to some who say, I'm in, I'm in the fellowship. I'm just here to teach the Word of God. That's why even at the Bible church, someone who comes and they say, I'm a teacher, I believe I'm skilled at doing that, we don't even let them do anything for a full year. We watch, we're concerned, we talk with them, we receive them into a membership process, and then even after that, We talk with them privately. It's a long, long time before anybody would step and ascend into a teaching position here because it's this important. Why? Because we know what Scripture says. There are going to be people who are going to come in and they're going to be false, denying the very things that we hold so dear. And when we respond to them, we respond to them in a certain way, and that's avoiding their crafty doctrine. Fourth and finally, respond to some sinning Christians by announcing their works of darkness. By announcing their works of darkness. Addressing some with forgiveness, these sinning, professing Christians, admonishing others in their sin, and avoiding some others and their crafty doctrine. And fourth and finally, responding to some sinning Christians, those who profess, by announcing their works of darkness. John chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. It's very clear. Jesus talks about light and darkness there and talks about people who are walking in the darkness don't like to come to the light because their deeds are exposed. Well, guess what? If we're all about light, 
then we're all about exposure, exposing them, announcing their works of darkness. You remember in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 22 to 25, the church is made up of edified believers. That's what the worship service is supposed to be all about, believers who are coming to be equipped in the truth. And some unbeliever, as though it were a surprise to Paul that any unbeliever would want to show up, he shows up, and Paul's point is, he sees a whole bunch of tongues speaking goes that, that's going on, and he says, isn't this guy, when all of these tongues are being talked, isn't he going to say, these people are stark raving mad? But not if prophecy is going on, not if... The Lord's Word is being articulated. And when the Lord's Word is being articulated, not not deeds of darkness, not false religion, but true words, then it says His own deeds will be exposed and He'll be held accountable to all and He comes to faith in Christ. There's the right kind of exposing of an unbeliever and their dark deeds. Teach the Word, teach the Word, teach the Word. Let's go to one last one before we close. Ephesians chapter 5. This may, this may nail it for you completely. Respond to some who profess to know Jesus Christ by announcing their works of darkness. Notice what Paul says. Verse 3. says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. This is not just crafty doctrine. These are works of darkness. And what are they? Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, those are out of place. Instead, there should be thanksgiving with our lips. He says, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, verse 5, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. There's some of those crafty doctrinal words there. He says, verse 7, don't become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, Like they are, but you are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And then this marvelous verse, verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, what? Expose them. Announce it. The Greek word for expose, which means to show someone his fault or his error, to convince someone of his fault, show someone for what he truly is, prove guilty, condemn, reprove, rebuke, expose. You have to, at some times, address people with forgiveness. At some times, admonish people. At some times, avoid them altogether. And at some points, just announce what's really going on. Now you say... But what do you do in some cases where none of these things are either enough or appropriate? Well, that's where Matthew 18 comes in. That's where 1 Corinthians 5 comes in. That's the official sense. All of these things that I've talked about today are all what is supposed to go on in the body weekly. That's our responsibility to these sinning, professing members of the body. We have a tremendous responsibility, don't we? That means we have to be on our toes at all times. I pray you're on your toes. It might be, my beloved friends, that if we were more on our toes with regard to these commands and what we're commanded to do, that we wouldn't be so prone to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We wouldn't be so easily deceived by someone who comes along and says, I need some help. Let's be more discerning as we move through how to respond to sinning Christians. Let's pray together. Father, You have given us a timely word. You've told us so very clearly that there are different responses to different situations. And I pray that we would respond to those who profess to know You in such ways that are appropriate to their situation. And I pray, Holy Father, that You would allow us to be humble, to be joyous, 
and to be clear about our own lives and what we ourselves are doing because maybe we're not simply on the giving end of these responses. Maybe we will be on the receiving end and we will need to respond to those who confront us, those who forgive us. And Lord, I pray that we would be alert and aware of the enemy's tactics and to know how to respond in each situation to those even within our fellowship, to say nothing of those outside. Help us, Lord. Make us discerning. Show us the right way. Thank you for these biblical references. Thank you that they teach us how to respond to one another. And I pray, Lord, that if all of those things seem to come to a place where others need to intervene, that we would then but only then come to the leaders of the fellowship and speak to them of what we have found. May we do so with grace and wisdom power and strength because we've been called by you to respond in these ways. These are your commands. May we carry them out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.